Well, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. That will be our text this Lord's Day. Uh, If you've been with us, you know that we've been walking through this book of Acts together. And I realize uh, last Sunday with the weather, a number of you weren't able to be here. Uh, What we looked at last week at the beginning of Acts 9 was the conversion of Saul. We looked at how Saul was intent on putting an end to the church. Uh, He was a a, a religious leader of the day who... uh, wanted to get rid of the way that the early Christians. And so in his attempt to go and persecute them in Damascus, uh, Jesus had other plans for him. And that is where Christ appeared to him and called him to repentance and faith. And so we talked last week about the conversion of Saul and about how uh, Jesus can can save anyone. Uh, there's no one so far gone that Christ cannot save them. And, and we pick up now. In in Saul's story in Acts 9, uh, now that he has been converted, we come to a point now where he is proclaiming the gospel. As we look to this text today, I would like us to consider a question. How do we know if someone is truly a Christian? How do we know that someone really has had authentic life change? They've repented, they've turned from their sins, they've placed their faith in Christ. We live in a culture, we live in a part of the world where many people claim to be Christian, many people use that title Christian, and yet when you examine the fruit of their lives, it seems that so often those who say they're Christian, their lives don't really look that different from those who say they're not Christians. And so how do we know if someone is a follower of Christ? I want you to think about that as we look to this text today. That is a question that comes up among the disciples there in Jerusalem when Saul comes to them professing to be a follower of Christ. Uh, They wonder, is he really a follower of Christ or is this some sort of trick? As we look to this, I think what we'll see in this text is what it looks like, what what, what the Scripture indicates authentic faith is and, and, and how can we tell if someone truly is a believer. And as we look to those things, I hope that each of us will ask ourselves, Do we understand the gospel and have we truly responded to the gospel? I'd like us to consider those things as we walk through this text today. And so, out of reverence for the word of God, if you're able to, if you would stand as I read it for us today. Picking up now at the point where Saul has been converted, has become a believer, and is now sharing his faith with others. We find this in Acts chapter 9, beginning... Halfway through verse 19 there. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and 
brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them in Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. If you would pray with me. Father God, we pray that your spirit would be at work today. Lord, I pray for everyone here that we would all understand the gospel, that we would respond to the gospel, that we would proclaim the gospel to the nations. We pray for this in Christ's name and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. I began our study last week asking the question, the question of what it would be like for the the leader of the terrorist group ISIS to become known to us and for that terrorist being known to us to be here on our land and be coming in our community and what it would be like if the Lord were somehow to direct us to go to that leader of this terrorist organization to lay hands on them and to pray for them in the name of Jesus. And that's essentially what Ananias was asked to do early in Acts 9. And we looked at that last week. Saul was intent on destroying the church. Destroying those who profess the name of Jesus Christ. And yet the Lord called one of his disciples, Ananias, to go and lay hands on this man and to, to pray for him. And so we, we talked about that last week. This week, the person who previously had been a a masked terrorist became known to all of us, if you've been keeping up in the news, the leader of ISIS or that one terrorist who seems to be their front person um, often, Mohammed Imwazi is his name. If you followed the reports, they've talked about how Imwazi uh, became involved in ISIS and now how he is Breathing murderous threats, much like we saw Saul breathing in the early part of Acts chapter 9. So I want you to consider today, what would it be like if this week you were watching the news and a report came on of Muhammad Mwazi and this report said, well, something has happened. He, he is now professing faith in Jesus Christ. And now as a Christian, he wants to meet with all the Christian leaders and he wants to proclaim the gospel with them. What, what would it be like if you happened to be in that circle and be invited to, to sit down with him, him coming to you now as a professing Christian? Would you feel safe? Would you believe him? Or would you think that somehow this was a trick? Somehow this was a ploy in order to infiltrate the Christians in order to bring more havoc, more destruction. That essentially is the question before the disciples here in Acts chapter 9. As this one named Saul has professed faith in Christ, they're very suspicious of that. And they're, they're, they're suspect of, can we really trust him? And they come to the question that I've brought to you today. How do we really know that Saul has become a follower of Christ? How do you this morning know 
if someone is a follower of Christ? Is it because they walk an aisle on a Sunday morning? Is it because they get baptized in a church? Is it because their name's on a membership roll? Is it because they go to a Sunday school class? Is it because they have a certain office or position in the church? Is it because they're a pastor? How do you really know if someone is genuinely a follower of Jesus? Again, so many people in our culture today, they say they're Christian, but how do we really know? Well, I think today's text gives us some insight to that question, beginning with the first point that I put there in your notes. The gospel of Jesus Christ changes us. How do we know if someone has responded to the gospel? One of the indicators from God's word is that they are a changed person. And we see that very clearly in the life of the one called Saul. Here in the text we read that after Saul is converted, verse 20, he immediately proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. He immediately went and shared the gospel. Now, I want you to notice something here. Remember, Ananias was sent from the Lord to go and to lay hands on Saul and to pray for him, among other things, that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so filled with the Holy Spirit, what does Saul do? Saul does what we consistently see throughout the book of Acts. When he is filled with the Holy Spirit, when he's empowered with the Holy Spirit, he proclaims the gospel. That there's much confusion in the church today about what it means to be filled with the Spirit. About what the fruit of being filled with the Spirit is. And yet, if you read through the book of Acts, what you see is the consistent fruit of being filled with the Holy Spirit. The consistent fruit is bold gospel proclamation. That's what we see here in Acts chapter 9. Saul is filled with the Spirit and he proclaims the gospel. And notice where he does it. He does it in the very synagogues that he was headed towards in order to persecute the Christians. See, oftentimes, when we think about the Lord calling us to go share the gospel, we we think of that in the context of going somewhere else. And so perhaps you feel this morning like the Lord is calling you to go on a mission trip to share the gospel, uh, to go to Poland this summer with our church, uh, to go to Southeast Asia this fall. Perhaps the Lord is leading you to go somewhere else to share the gospel. And I encourage you to do those things. I think that is very much a clear call from the Scripture for us to go to the nations with the gospel. But we have to be careful that in doing that, we don't neglect sharing the gospel here where we are today. Sometimes we think about sharing the gospel as something we go somewhere else to do. But very clearly in the Scripture, we're called to share the gospel where we are today. Here Saul is on his way to the synagogues. The Lord uses him on his way to the synagogues to do what? To share the gospel. When you and I become followers of Jesus, part of the responsibility that we then bear is to be ambassadors for Christ. To share the gospel wherever we are. And that means we're to proclaim the gospel in our workplaces, in our schools, at our dinner tables, in our homes, wherever we are, we're to share about the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And that's exactly what we see Saul doing here in Acts chapter 9. And notice what happens as he does this. The text tells us in verse 21 that the people, they were amazed. Verse 22, that they were confounded. That that word confounded is the same Greek word used back in Acts chapter 2 verse 6 to describe how the people responded when they heard the disciples speaking in other languages at Pentecost. And so if you remember that text when we look through it, Jews came from all over the world there to Jerusalem for Pentecost. They came from all kinds of areas speaking all kinds of different languages. And what God did through the power of the Spirit is He empowered the apostles to boldly proclaim the gospel. And they were speaking in languages that they did not know. But people there at Pentecost, that was their native tongue. They were hearing the gospel proclaimed in their native tongue. And their response to that in Acts chapter 2, verse 6, is they were amazed. You can imagine what that would be like. If you've ever been to another country, if you've ever been, even in our country, to a place where people spoke a different language. And imagine what it would be to be walking in an area where everybody's speaking a different language and then to have someone stand up and immediately start speaking in English in a language you understood. That would catch your attention. And then imagine what it would be like if you knew that person didn't know English. Well, that would amaze you. That's the same response that the Scripture tells us the Jewish leaders had to Saul. It's as if he is speaking a different language. And it's because he is. See, Saul is a changed man. This is the very Saul who they know had come to Damascus in order to persecute the Christians. In order to find those who spoke in the name of Jesus and to drag them back to Jerusalem and to beat them And much like Stephen's fate, perhaps to stone them to death. And here that same Saul is standing up saying, Jesus is the Son of God. And that amazes them. That bewilders them. Because what they see there is that Saul is a changed man. I want you to consider this morning what the Gospel does to us. The Gospel changes us. And for some, the reason they don't respond to the gospel, perhaps for some of you today, the the reason you have not responded to the gospel is because you don't think you need to change. It's because you feel like a pretty good person. And that's usually how we describe ourselves. Well, I know I'm not perfect, but I try to do the right things. That's kind of the, the cultural mandate we have. We'll just try to be a good person. And if we're honest, for some of us, we don't think we need to change. And so we're not drawn to the gospel that says, yes, you do. We may see the need for the gospel for somebody like Saul. Well, Saul was a murderer. Of course he needed the gospel. We may see the need for the gospel for some in our culture today who we view as wicked and as criminal and as evil. Oh yeah, they need the gospel. But in our own lives, sometimes we don't see our need for the gospel because we think we're pretty good people. I want to remind you this morning, friends, that the Scripture says every single one of us here today desperately needs the gospel. Every one of us here today desperately needs the change that the gospel brings to us.
Listen to what Jesus said about our flesh and about what our flesh does to us. See, Jesus said that our our flesh causes us to sin. And our sin reminds us of how desperately we need the gospel. Listen to this text. And perhaps this is a text you've read before and you've not quite understood what Jesus was saying. Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. Now, do you understand what Jesus is saying there? I remember as a young believer reading that passage and being kind of confused, as I think many believers probably are today, and thinking, well, my goodness, there's, there's certainly been things I, I've seen that have led me to sin. So is Jesus saying here that I need to gouge out my eye? There's certainly sin that these hands have committed. Is, is Jesus saying here, I need to cut my hands off in order to enter the kingdom of God. If that's what he's saying, if we take a translation, an interpretation of this to mean, if I ever sin and it involves my eye, if I ever sin and it involves my hands, then I need to cut them off or gouge them out, then let's be honest. We would be a bunch of blind amputees this morning. Because every one of us in this room, we, we've sinned. But Jesus here says, if. If your right eye causes you to sin. I propose to you this morning that it is not the I that causes you to sin. Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to sin. I propose to you today that it is not your right hand that causes you to sin. So what is it that is the root cause of sin? Listen to the words of the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-six. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. Ezekiel is speaking to a messianic promise. He's speaking to the day that the gospel is presented to us as we see it clearly being presented through Saul today. And what is he saying? He's saying that everyone in this room is born with a cold heart of stone. That every one of us in this room comes into this world lost, sinful, and depraved. We talked about this last week. That's why David in the psalm says that that, that from the time he was in his mother's womb, he was a sinner. Every one of us in this room has a sin nature we're born with. And what Jesus is saying here is not that you need to cut off your hands And not that you need to gouge out your eyes. What Jesus is saying is what you need is a new heart. That's what causes you to sin. Your wicked, sinful heart. And the great promise of the gospel is, is that Jesus can give us a new heart when we repent and place our faith in Christ. And friends, when that happens, we change. Those things we delight in change. Those things we hunger and thirst for change. Those things we say and do change. Do we become perfect people? Absolutely not. Do we still struggle with sin? Of course we do. But something fundamentally changes in us 
when the gospel is made real, when our cold, dead heart is removed, and when we receive a heart of flesh. And we see that very clearly happen in Saul's life. And that's exactly what happens in our life. And that's why when we talk to people about the gospel, we need to be very clear with them that the gospel will change you. Because sometimes I fear that, that in an effort to woo people into responding to the gospel, we don't say a whole lot to them about how radically their life is going to change. I was in a conversation a few years back, and myself and another minister were sharing the gospel with someone, and as we were talking to them, uh, this person we were sharing the gospel with said very clearly to us, listen, if, if what you're saying is true, and I become a Christian, then I'm going to have to give some things up. And they just said, honestly, I, I don't really want to give this stuff up. I, I don't really want to stop doing these things I'm doing. I really like what I'm doing. I really enjoy this. And I, and I don't want to stop doing that because I've become a Christian. My friend kind of started to say to him, listen, well, don't worry about that. And, and that's not the issue you need to be concerned about right now. And, and he was just trying to woo him into, come on, just make this response. And I stopped and said, you know what? You're exactly right. <laughs> if you repent and place your faith in Jesus, your life will change. Friends, if you have responded to the gospel this morning, then there should be change in your life. And if there's no change in your life, then that's evidence that you may not have responded to the gospel. And this is a serious issue. Because so often we talk about the gospel as something that, oh yeah, when I was eight years old, I responded to that. Or, or my name's on the membership of such and such church. Yeah, I've responded to that. The overwhelming evidence in the New Testament of a response to the gospel is your life looks different. And people look at it and just like the Jews looked at Saul, they're amazed and they're bewildered and they don't understand. They don't understand because it's not a work of man, it's a work of God. And if that evidence is not in your life and in my life today, that is cause for us to be concerned because the gospel changes us. Not only that, point two, we see that the gospel of Jesus Christ brings suffering to us. The gospel of Jesus Christ brings suffering to us. There are some in our culture today who, who don't talk about the gospel this way at all. There are some in our culture today who talk about the gospel as the key to prosperity. They tell you if you respond to the gospel, then you will prosper. If you respond to the gospel, you'll, you'll experience true health and, and true wealth. If you respond to the gospel, you'll get your best life now. That's not what Saul shows us in Acts chapter 9. Here, Saul responds to the gospel, and notice what happens to him in verse 23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. <laughs> now think about that for a moment. Saul responds to the gospel in faith. Christ appears to him and says, You have been persecuting me. He responds to the gospel. In our culture today, we think about, well, if I just give my life to Jesus, God will reward me, everything will get better. What happens to Saul? He responds to the gospel, and now people want to kill him. Why do they want to kill him? Well, it's the same reason that Saul wanted to kill the Christians. See, the Jews were threatened by the Christians principally because the Jews were monotheistic. They believed in one God. 
And they heard the Christians talking about Jesus being God, and so they viewed that as polytheism, as them believing in multiple gods. Well, you're saying the Father's God and Jesus is God. You believe in more than one God, and so that's not compatible with monotheism. They didn't understand the Trinity, the triune nature of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, that we are, as Christians, monotheists. They were also threatened by Christians. They, they saw them as being deceivers. If you remember at the end of the Gospels, when Christ was resurrected, what the religious leaders told the guards to tell people. They said, tell them that his body was stolen by the disciples. And so that's what many of the Jewish leaders believed. They believed the disciples, when they preached the resurrection, were just a bunch of liars because they had just stolen that body. Now Saul, once the man who persecuted these Christians, he proclaims to be one of these Christians. And so they want to kill him just as he wanted to kill those who followed Christ. But I don't think Saul is shocked by any of this. In fact, I think Saul expected to suffer. Do you remember what Ananias uh, was told by the Lord? The Lord said to Ananias, go lay hands on him, pray he'll be filled with the Spirit. And the Lord says, I'm going to show Saul how he needs to suffer for my name's sake. Notice that. In the very moment that Saul is hearing and responding to the gospel, partnered with the gospel here, is this call to suffer. Jesus says to Saul, I want you to follow me and you're going to suffer for my name's sake. Friends, when you respond to the gospel, you do not sign up for an easy life. When you and I respond to the gospel, that is not our get-out-of-jail-free card. That, that is not some free pass from suffering. That is not a ticket to prosperity and health and wealth. In fact, Jesus says when we respond to the gospel, we're responding to the call to suffer with Him. And again, this is something that so often we, we don't present when we talk to people about the gospel. We're trying to woo them in. But for those of you that are seasoned in the faith, for those of you who have been walking with the Lord for some time, you've come to see this. You come to see how intertwined with the faith is this call to suffer. And how it seems that those who love the Lord greatly and walk by faith the most oftentimes are the ones who suffer greatly. See, some of us have this false notion in our mind that, that we've picked up somewhere along the way. Well, if I'm just faithful enough, everything will work out for me. And then when it doesn't work out, what do we do? We get very mad at God, don't we? God, how could you do this? Why did you take this away? Why did you allow this to happen? Because we're holding God to some sort of barter that He never made with us. We're viewing God as if He owes us something rather than looking to what His Word teaches us. And what Jesus says very clearly in His words, friend, is that if we respond to the Gospel we will suffer. 1 Peter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. What is Peter saying here? Listen, when you suffer, don't be surprised. And don't look to God and say, I don't know why I'm suffering. But, he says, rejoice. Insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. What does that mean? Very simply, this is what it means. 
Some of you today are suffering. Some of you today are grieving the loss of someone you love. Some of you today are dealing with the news of a cancer or a sickness or a disease. Some of you today are tempted to think, God, why are you allowing this to happen to me? And the word of encouragement for you from God's word is this. Your suffering is temporal. Your suffering will end. There is a day when the glory of Christ will be revealed to all of us and all of the pain and suffering in this world will be extinguished. And that is a glorious thing, friends. Because for those who don't have hope in the gospel of Jesus, their suffering will be eternal. And God has given us a great promise in His Word. And He has said to us, Yes, you will suffer and it will be hard. But have hope. Because one day the glory of Christ will be revealed. And you and I will suffer no more. And that's the hope we're to have. And how sad is it in those moments for us to neglect the Word of God and begin to question God and say, why are you letting this happen to me? It's as if the Lord knew we would ask that question and place this very verse here to say, when it happens, don't ask the question, why is this happening to me? But rejoice. Rejoice doesn't mean we put on a fake smile. It doesn't mean we put on our happy face. And it certainly doesn't mean we turn that frown upside down. Rejoice, friend, means we place our hope in Christ Jesus. Because that's the only place we can put our hope. We need to understand the call to the Gospel. It is a call to change. It is a call to suffer. And so, let's be honest. Who would sign up for that? (laughs) I mean, that's not a real enticing way to get people in the church, is it? If we put on our marquee, hey, hey, come join us this Sunday so your life will, you'll have to let go of things you love and so that you can come suffer with us. It's not really the way to woo people in, is it? See, so often now the churches have focused on how can we woo people in? How can we get people in our doors? Not long ago I was at a hospital waiting to visit someone and as I was there I started talking to a man sitting across from me, only to find out he was also a minister in another church, another city. We started talking about church, and he started sharing with me about the discoveries in their church and how they were having great success at getting people to return to their church after they'd visited. And so I I said, well, what have you been doing? And he said, well, you know, anytime somebody visits our church, we send them a letter and in that letter, we, we give them a free meal to Chick-fil-A. And, and we let them know if they come back, we'll, we'll give them some more things like that. Now, let me be clear today. I love Chick-fil-A. And in fact, I will go so far as to say this. If you are ever driving within 10 miles of a Chick-fil-A on your way to Bloomfield, you can go ahead and get a number one meal and bring it to my house and I will pay you for it. I am always ready to eat Chick-fil-A. I love Chick-fil-A. In fact, 
last a uh, couple Sundays ago, Sandy and I were driving to Cincinnati. Uh, Caroline had surgery the next day, and we were excited talking about Chick-fil-A. And then as much as I appreciate Chick-fil-A being closed on Sunday, I did not appreciate it that day when I realized it was Sunday. But friends, we will not build the church on free Chick-fil-A meals. If we just come up with gimmicks to woo people in our doors, we are not building a church. We're building something, but we're not building a church. See, we need to be honest with people about the gospel. The gospel means you will have to let go of things. The gospel means you will suffer. So why would anyone respond to it? Point three, because the gospel of Jesus Christ is our only hope. It's because you and I are dead in our sins, condemned to an eternal hell under the wrath of God forever, apart from the gospel. We don't need a free chicken sandwich. We need the gospel of Jesus. That is the only place our hope can rest. Saul here comes to Jerusalem. And as he comes to the disciples, they're afraid of him. And we've already considered this. You can imagine why they would be afraid. They, they weren't sure that he was a disciple. They weren't sure, is this for real or not? Notice how they're convinced. Barnabas, that, that one we know is the, the son of encouragement. He brings Saul to them and he reminds the disciples of the simple truth. The gospel changes people. See, I think the disciples did what we can so easily do. We can preach the gospel, we can talk about the gospel, but when it comes to some people, we don't really have faith that the gospel is going to change them. There are some people, if we're honest, you and I have perhaps written off. And we thought they're never going to change. They've heard it over and over again. They're never going to turn from it. Perhaps someone you love Perhaps someone you live with in your home and you have talked to about the gospel over and over and over again as much as you want them to change. Perhaps you, like I have at times, have fallen into thinking, I just don't think they're ever going to. And then if they ever did, you might even be suspect of whether it's genuine or not. Here the disciples look at Saul and they don't believe that it's genuine. And Barnabas just reminds them of the simple truth. The gospel changes people. The gospel has changed Saul. And so Saul goes on then to join the disciples to proclaim the gospel. And then verse 31, the church grows and is multiplied as a result. I want us to each consider the simple question this morning. Do you understand the gospel? We talk about it. I've said the word 150 times this morning, but do you understand the gospel? Do you understand that you and I are born sinners, that you and I, as a result of our sin, deserve an eternal hell under the wrath of God? Do you understand that God demonstrates His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died on the cross for us? Do you understand that if you and I will confess Christ as Lord, if we'll repent and turn from our sin, then we'll be saved? Do you understand that? And if you do understand it, question two is, have you responded to it in such a way that there is now difference in your life? 
Has the gospel changed you? It changed Saul. It changes everyone in the New Testament. Has the gospel changed you? Or does your life look very similar to how it looked before you walked that aisle, before you got in that baptismal, before you joined this or another church? If your life doesn't look any different, friends, then the reality is your life probably is no different. I'm not here this morning to comfort you and to woo you and to somehow make us think that that it's all good. I'm here this morning to open up the Word and perhaps for some help you to see that, that, that maybe that comfort you've felt is a false security and that the reality is you've never responded to the Gospel. And so the question is, if you haven't, then what is keeping you from doing that? Why would you wait another moment to respond to the gospel? The free offer is here for you today to repent and place your faith in Christ. If you do that, will God change you? Absolutely. Will your life be easy? No. But does glory await? Yes. (laughs) And Christ says, while you may suffer for a season, glory is coming to those who follow Him. We're going to offer an opportunity to respond to God's Word today. And I want to encourage you to to respond however the Lord leads. If He's calling you to place your faith in Jesus, then, then I call out to you as the Scripture does. Today's the day of salvation. Place your faith in Jesus Christ. If He's calling you perhaps this morning... To, to repent of a sin there in your life. Perhaps there's something that you are holding on to that, that, that you won't let go of, that, that, that you know, the Spirit's convicted, you know you need to let go of that thing. You need to turn from it and repent from it. We, we invite you to do that. Perhaps this morning you need to consider what the Scripture tells us. We need to rejoice in our sufferings. That doesn't mean we put on a happy face, but it means we place our faith in the one in whom we can trust and the one in whom we can hope in the midst of our suffering. Whatever it is, we invite you to respond to the Lord and His Word. If you would stand together as I pray for us. Father God, we do come to You in the name of Jesus. And Lord, I pray that we would all understand and respond to the Gospel. I pray, Lord, that in in a response to it, that we would be willing to suffer for it. Lord, I pray for our congregation today, Lord. We, we see people around the world suffering for the gospel and, and it can seem foreign to us. But Lord, we live in a day and age, we live in the reality where taking a stand for the gospel means we may lose a lot of things. But Lord, I pray that you would help us and empower us in the power of your spirit to take that bold stand in the truth of the gospel and to share it with others. Lord, I pray for those who today are suffering, that they would rejoice in their suffering, trusting in You, knowing that Christ's glory will be revealed, and that our suffering is temporary. It is for a moment. Lord, I pray our hope would rest in You today. pray for any, Lord, who You're drawing to come and join this church fellowship to confess Christ, that they would come. And we pray for them in Jesus' name. Amen.